Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and I'm back to the topic of AI, automation, and machine learning in investment selection and portfolio management. This time around, we've got a different angle. We're looking at how this sort of technology is being used to improve decision-making in the bonds market. That's right, tech innovation in fixed income, would you believe it? Uh, I'm joined by David Curtis, Head of Global Client Business at Bond IT, who's going to tell us all about what's going on. David, welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. Thank you very much, Ian. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you here. It's really good to have you here because I, I think this is an area that is almost a bit unexpected. As I was saying, automation and, and machine learning in bonds, it, it's at least late to the party, right? So uh, what I want to know from you to start is, is what is Bond IT and, and how are you bringing AI and machine learning into bond investing? Sure. No, delighted to uh, to share that with you. And it's interesting, your observations. Um, you know, te- Technology is penetrating every single form of our lives so we might be a little late to the party in fixed income, but it's inevitable that technology adoption in bond investing increases. And what we are, Bond IT, uh, we're a growth stage fintech company. We're bringing the use of AI and other advanced technologies uh, to fixed income investing. Uh, we're 50 people based around the world. Uh, most of our programmers, which is 70% of the company, are in Tel Aviv and Berlin, because that's where you hire talented programmers nowadays. Um, and we're managing, uh, our technology is being used to manage around $500 billion of client money. Okay. And David, what's your background? Because I have a number of people come on on the Wealth Tech Show who are with, with younger companies, kind of startup or you know early stage companies. What institutional background do you have and what experience do you have that, that kind of led you to the current role? It was very much my observations in my prior roles that convinced me to cross the line and be a technologist and apply it to the financial industry. Uh, my last role was 16 years at Goldman Sachs, running their UK asset management business. Uh, before that, I was in one of the precursor companies of uh, BlackRock for a previous eight years, and I started my career trading fixed income and commodities. So I've seen it from the inside of the industry, and it's very evident to me there's a lot of opportunity for change. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you know, I've been doing some reading around this topic, as you would expect, and I was looking at something that a recent Barclays Global Fixed Income Markets Structure Survey. That's a lovely name for a paper, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that's, that's re- that really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It found that over 60% of fixed income institutional investors do not have an execution order management system. So I assume, is that is that indica- indicative of the kind of uh, delay and, and lack of tech use in fixed income right now. Well, is, isn't that interesting just by itself, right? What that means is order management is done bilaterally, over the phone, one person speaking to another. And I think you'll find this in every corner of finance. There are idiosyncrasies, nomenclature, um, conventions that are non-standardized um, and retard the industry into less efficient processes. You know, the job of technology is to provide scale. Technology is all about scale. And decoding that nomenclature and convention is something we're very focused on. Because once you do that, you can bring efficiencies to the market. So I I bet if we were here in five years' time and looked at the next Barclays report on auto management system, it's going to be it's it's going to be a completely different statistic. Technology will have penetrated. Yeah, absolutely. And again, more more data. Hopefully, uh, with a better named paper this time. Uh, the ba- actually, I haven't got the name of the paper actually, so because there isn't one. Uh, the Bank of America Corporation uh, 
executed 2.7 times more trading volume globally through its credit bots in the first half of 2021 than it did in the first half of 2020. Uh, so a lot of that growth has been attributed to junk bonds and emerging markets. I want to get back into that later on. But it does look like we're moving in the right direction, at least. Yeah, there's no doubt. In, in the institution I previously worked for when I joined in 2005, I think there were 45 US Treasury traders. When I left, there was one. Wow. It, it, it does show the inevitable digitalization of fixed income markets. Mm-hmm. And, and let's look at the benefit to investors, because that's, that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? Have you got any data or findings that highlight the, the benefits that you've been able to provide by, by using technology at Bond IT? Yeah, I, I think they're in a couple of different places. What's most important to us is performance. It's helping our clients to perform. Um, If I look at our AI credit research, we're able to identify uh, rating downgrades at about 17% higher frequency um, compared to rating agencies. You know, that's a a hard statistic that um, if anyone wants to uh, see the data, we're big believers in transparency, they can call us up and we can share. But you'll find similar efficiencies through speed. Um, our, Our portfolio construction technology is very fast. Speed's important because it's a proxy for scaling. If you can do things quickly, you can do lots of things which are more complicated in the timeframes that normal fixed income workflows take. Um, and, then, and then efficiency gains. Um, we're, we're able to manage thousands and thousands of portfolios using our technology, not just a handful. Mm-hmm. And um, do you- Actually, you, know, you were mentioning the, uh, the availability of data. Do people have to call you up, or is there any publicly available data out there on, on how you're you know, identifying spreads ahead yeah. of the market? We, we, for comprehensive data, we'd prefer to share that one-to-one. Uh, we give a lot of examples uh, on our website or through our, uh, our, our LinkedIn site. Um, you know, anecdotes are very engaging for people, but actually statistical evidence of predictive power is what clients really need to see to embrace and develop um, their use of AI and the work we're doing. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to identifying the credit markets, what data points are you looking at? And and, and on top yeah. of that, what have you learned recently? Because my understanding is that the credit market has learned a huge amount from the recent pandemic, cri- you know, the COVID crisis. And we're we're getting a better understanding of how investors react to stressful moments. Sure. So, so what kind of things are you looking for and, and what are the key identifiers for you in, in you know, spotting something ahead of time? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of in- interesting points that come out of uh, um, your, your comments there, Ian. First of all, what data are we, are we using? Um, we digest about 350 gigabytes of data every single day. Uh, and consolidate that to give basically two outputs, an output of an upgrade or a downgrade of an issuer. Um, Inside that data set, we have data from the rating agencies. We use S&P Capital IQ for fundamental data. We use pricing data from uh, from ICE. Okay, so there are primary data sources. Um, What's really interesting is that's not going to tell you everything, right? We aren't a replacement for fundamental credit research done by humans, okay? The observations that humans have will be different to what you can extract from data. We think of it as orthogonal. It's valuable, but the value is in a different direction. So it's the combination of these two things, humans and machine working together, that we think yields the best possible um, insight. And, and COVID's probably a good example than that uh, of that. You know, we're using data going back to 1996. Um, 
This is a recent event. It's going to take the computer a long time to catch up. Okay, so you're you're constrained by a data set into the explainability of the time series that you're looking at. When fundamental events happen, like news, or in this case, a pandemic, you're going to need to supplement that data set with human insight. Yeah, and, and that's something I've discussed a few times recently on, on the podcast. But I'm, I'm keen to get your thoughts on two anyway, which is the idea of the notion that the role of the wealth manager changing. Is it is it simply a case of being tech enabled or not being tech enabled, uh, or is there more to it than that? I think there's an amazing opportunity, as you know, as we've observed across every industry. Um, I think technology can bring huge efficiencies to advisors, so they can spend more time at what they're really good at doing, which is helping their underlying clients formulate an investment strategy, implement it, and monitor it. And there are a number of different points in that process um, that technology can, can, can be applied. Ours is really on the investment piece. It's about finding better investments. Um, but we also help advisors in terms of transparency. As, as a consequence to our technology, we provide advisors with a lot of data and analytics so they can monitor their client portfolios uh, better than they could possibly before. Uh, and when people are working with you, I assume I don't have to be, but is there any requirement for a wealth manager to be tech savvy? Do they need to know what they're on about in the tech world to, to be a good partner for you? Well, the, the opportunity for us is through mass adoption. So we've spent a lot of time um, building what we call PMX, which is Portfolio Manager Experience. PMX is, uh, frankly, making what we do um, user-orientated and intuitive. We want the advisors to be able to log on and use our site as they would um, Expedia or Amazon Shopping. It should be absolutely no different. We've invested a lot in that front-end development so anyone can log on and get started within a few minutes. Now, if you are more technical, there's a huge amount that we can do. But we wanted to lower the barrier to, barrier to entry. Um, and we're about to roll out some technology in the in the U.S. across a, a group of about 5,000 advisors. Um, and our objective is to get every single one of those advisors using our technology. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, of course, user failure is often the biggest reason why tech doesn't work at companies. So to have a kind of scalable system does make sense to me. Uh, and, and I want to look at the actual investments themselves now, because... As you're saying, there's no need to get rid of the, the human wealth manager to keep an eye on what the technology is suggesting to us. Have you seen any recent kind of bond upgrades or, or downgrades that really surprised you, that you think you would not have noticed, noticed without the technology being there? Well, I, I was thinking about this on, on the way in to see you, Ian, and there was one yesterday that, that, that caught my attention. This was a utility company. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll share the name. Uh, it was Enel. Um, and all Chile, actually, and there was a downgrade by S&P from triple B plus to triple B. Uh, our data picked up that upgrade back in November. Um, I looked at the pricing of the bond. The Z spread uh, widened by about 30 basis points from when we identified the opportunity to where it's currently being priced today. So it was just a great example of what can be hidden in data. We focus on what we call explainable AI. So we don't believe in the black box model. We're using data, but we use that output and interpret it, relating it back to fundamental factors. 
So when I when, when I looked at that example, what I could see is that the market data, let, let me just simplify that and say equity price. Equity price was a big driver of us identifying the weakening of that credit back in November. Um, and actually, the rating agency data that we also look at had a very contrary view. The rating view uh, didn't support um, a downgrade. So it was really interesting to see. Um, what was hidden in the data and the relative importance of the equity price versus what the credit rating agencies were saying. So yeah. it, was, it was a good success for us. Oh, definitely. And, and what is the success rate, generally speaking, if you were to wholeheartedly trust the, the AI? Well, firstly, I'd warn you, never wholeheartedly <laughs> trust the AI. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I, I'd always recommend you know, filtering that through the human lens, right? But purely on a um, uh, on a statistical basis, we have about 17% higher probability at spotting downgrades before rating agencies. Um, and we're able to do that. We work to a six-month horizon, but we're able to do that on average uh, 60 to 70 days ahead of rating agencies. Yeah, and obviously one of the, the key tenets of machine learning is that the tools, you know, the algorithms get smarter and smarter as you go along. Is that 17% a number that's been steadily increasing? Are you, are you expecting that number to, to get larger? Well, we, we hope it does because we're really committed to continually improving our technology. I, 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 I want to be clear. We use the word AI quite interchangeably in the industry. The better description of what, we would, what we're doing is machine learning. You know, there's no true intelligence here. We're setting the objective, and the machine learning is operating within that objective. Um, so it's 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 pretty clever stuff. Yeah, but absolutely. It, it, um, intelligence, I think, pushes the boundary a little more than I'm. Um, yeah, no, that's fair. Really and doing. it's so easy to play fast and loose with these, <laughs> you know, these terms, isn't it? I do it all the time. So apologies to the the listeners no, for that. And uh, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, which was the uh, increased trading, uh, you know, al algorithmic trading of, yeah. of credit, was was largely attributed to junk bonds and emerging markets. What's what's your view on that? Well, it's 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 slowly penetrated all the different sectors of the bond markets. The data I've seen has shown there's been a big increase in those areas, uh, but actually European credit uh, and U.S. credit, the amount of digital trading there has increased the most over the last five years. There are also some areas that are really um, reluctant to change. You know, the U.S. municipal bond market—that's a classic example of a, uh, a very non-uniform market. Only about 10% of that market is trading um, digitally at the moment. But you can't stand in the way of technology. Technology will pull all of these markets into more electronic trading. More electronic trading means more data. We love data. We're very focused on using big data. Through big data, we'll get better insights. Um, you know, the number of um, quantitative hedge funds now trading credit markets has increased substantially. That's because of the data availability. I, I, I really think there's a unrelenting path um, that fixed income markets are traveling on, and that will create a lot of value. Okay. And my understanding is that the US is kind of the market, well, the, the international leader in automated credit investing. Uh, do, do you have an opinion on why that might be and, and why the UK might be a bit of a laggard in this respect? Our own sense is that it's about depth and liquidity because the markets are so deep, so so um, so broad in terms of market volume, so frequently traded. There's just greater pressure for change. The efficiencies are greater when something's even bigger. Um, it's probably um, 
um, coincides with the U- U.S. being very up the curve in terms of tech adoption, a very highly developed fintech industry. Um, yeah, that would that would that would probably explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And, and you're mentioning the industry, and earlier on you were talking about uh, where your offices are based uh, yeah. in terms of attracting the right fintech talent. Now, when we had a conversation uh, last week, you brought up something that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, and this is that the you know the best tech talent is is losing interest in working for banks. A bit different to credit investing now, I realise, but I really want to get into this. You were saying that people don't necessarily want the names of traditional banks on their CV. They'd sooner be working for companies that are tech-enabled and at the cutting edge of, of technology. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, because you know, the, these banks and asset managers, you would think, would have their pick of the talent. They've certainly got the money for that, you would assume. So what's going on? Yeah. It is something I've observed because I've asked our programmers, you know, if you weren't working here, where would you work? And they often say, why would I want to work somewhere else? (laughs) Okay, look, banks offer extraordinary opportunities for their employees. Um, So I don't want to imply that I'm knocking banks, but they can never be as nimble of a company like ours with 50 people around the world. You know, the technology we're using, let's think it's cloud, it's Snowflake, Kubernetes, Docker, These are the applications that programmers want to work on. They don't want to work on legacy technology platforms. They want to use the latest and the greatest of of what's out there at the moment. So if we offer that platform to technologists, they're more likely to work for us than other institutions. Many of our clients want to form partnerships with us and firms like us because they realize this point you need to tie into this third-party ecosystem of fintech firms who have the platforms who have the people and who also have an understanding of the problem so i i I see it as a, a natural market change from trying to do everything yourself to outsourcing specialist capabilities to partner firms that you can work with Mm-hmm. And I find it really fascinating, the idea that working for a bank or an asset manager might come with a, an opportunity cost of your skills and your talents becoming somewhat stale or defunct. It's something I don't think we've ever really thought about. And you just assume the best people will work in our sector. But but look at look at the competition that the banks have now. Um, you know, the technology firms themselves, uh, and then every industry that needs talented technology people. You know, the banks were very early in adopting quantitative skills and putting um, IT on the front office desks so that they could find efficiencies. But the whole world's waken up to that. So it's it's not just banks, it's supermarkets in the, um, the likes of Ocado, it's travel companies like Expedia. The war for talent is raging. Um, you know, Berlin and Tel Aviv are not low-cost areas for us to hire in. The salaries in those areas are as high as New York, London, or anywhere else in the world. It's um, it's remarkable. If you're if you're talented, you have an option of living where you want to live. Yeah. And people coming to you for your skills and talents, and you know that's that's a big advantage for us having those um, bases. That's that's really fascinating. And what can a you know we, a lot of our listeners are financial advice firms. I think this possibly applies a little bit less to them. But for those wealth managers who are at companies that you know long established wealth management companies with with plenty of scale and and size, what what should they do to try and ride the tech wave as well as possible and to make sure they've got the right talent within their company? It's it's a really good question. I, I would say there's so much that's happening now. You know, make sure you've got a part of your business, a group of people or a percentage of your time focused on what's out there. 
you know, survey the landscape. There are some terrific surveys of what's going on in wealth tech at the moment. You know, read them, jump in, meet people. Um, you know, I spend most of my time um, meeting our clients and meeting with new prospects and just having a discussion about the problems that they're trying to solve. The wealth problem, the advisor problem, I think it's utterly fascinating. And the technology is emerging. It is out there. I mentioned this rollout in the US that we're just um, working on at the moment. Um, the technology is out there to help advisors be much more um, efficient to help them perform, to give them access uh, to breadth of insight that perhaps they haven't had before. So I, I think it's look up and look around. Mm -hmm. And David, I, I want one last question to finish on. I've asked a few people this question uh, in recent weeks, which is if things go as you expect them to in, you know, say five, maybe even 10 years from now, and technology such as yours really is is utilized in the way that it should be, what do you think that means for the wealth manager or, or financial advisor on a day-to-day -day basis? How is their job different? I, I think they get to focus their time, as I said, on, on what they do best, right? Building trust-based relationships with their clients, understanding the client's objectives, uh, their return targets, their risk tolerances, their investor preferences. You know, ESG is such an important topic. It takes time to understand what your clients want to achieve. Then, by adopting a tool set that can help them by greater use of technology, they can implement those choices much more better, much uh, in an improved way. Yeah, yeah. They can implement those choices in an improved way. Uh, they can generate better performance for their clients in line with their objectives. And they can monitor those portfolios and provide reporting to their clients so that their clients are uh, alongside their advisor on that journey. Brilliant. David, that's a lovely summary and exactly why we do the Wealth Tech Show. Thank you so much. Um, that's all we've got time for today. And I really do think wealth managers should be listening to this message about automation and machine learning as well as part of the decision-making process. I say automation and machine learning, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's, it's turning into jargon, jargon city over here. But anyway, thank you as ever to everyone listening in. This has been the Wealth Tech Show. I'll be back again next week. 